Go to the book of Psalms. I don't think you would have to be paranoid. I don't think it would be an overreaction to suggest that God-hating rebels appeared to be everywhere. I mean, surrounded by them. Now, that sounds like the way we started last night's sermon a little bit, and I suppose there's reason for that. Romans 1.30 refers to haters of God. So that's my point when I say I'm not being reactionary. This is, this is a thing. Brother Jim refers often to the atheist that uh, wrote a book that said uh, God is dead and boy do I hate him or something to that effect. And that uh, that's, seems to be the general feeling of much of our culture today. Second um, Timothy 3.2 talks about blasphemers. It's just, they're so blasphemous in the things that they do and the way they see the world and the way they express themselves and art and so forth that uh, blasphemy seems to describe their general approach, general approach to life. Second Timothy 3.4 talks about those who are lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. You put all that together, haters of God, blasphemers, lovers of pleasure, more than lovers of God. These are observable um, characteristics of our culture. And I want us to think about that as we read our text. And and we're going to try to answer the question of why the antipathy, why why the anger, why the hatred for God, and then what should we do about it? Last night we mentioned that it is a bad bit of advice to turn the mission field into an enemy. And it's very easy to do that if we are are driven and shaped by our reaction to these types of people. Does that make sense? It's difficult to see people blaspheme God and not want to punch them in the throat. Right? And that means it's just, we live in a culture of just absolute madness. Psalm 2, why do the heathen rage? My father-in-law used to answer that abruptly with, because they're heathen. (laughs) That's true, right? Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Now, before we read this verse, I want to point out that there's, we had a, Pastor Jim and I had a college professor. I'm going to be able to talk before this sermon gets going at some point, I'm hoping. We had a college professor who said that all of history can be explained in one of two ways. Either the conspiratorial explanation, that much of what is happening that appears to be against us is on purpose. It's by design. Seems to me, if you don't see at least some of that, then you're just lying to yourself. It, it, you know, in other words, it, it marginalizes you too much to believe in conspiracies. It separates you from the cool people. And nobody wants to be marginalized. We all want to be accepted and admired and respected. And then there's the accidental uh, explanation for history that all things are simply accidents. They're just happenings. But why is it that all these things are happening and none of them are happening in our favor? <laughs> you know, that would be one question to ask, right? And 
Everything's not a conspiracy. But there's a whole lot of them that are. And what we're learning these days, if it's not a conspiracy that is perpetuated with intentional strategy from the top down, then it is at least a very educated, organized attempt at seizing every opportunity to to steal our freedom and to perpetuate the lies of a global culture, right? Now, remember last night we said if we're going to be faithful in this age, we have to develop a healthy negativity, right? And if we're going to be not worldly in our thinking, but rather godly in our thinking, we're going to be swimming upstream much of the time. And the big challenge is to swim upstream faithfully without allowing that struggle to affect our spirit. That's the struggle, okay? We can all get mad and line up behind the issues and uh, rage against the ragers, right? Or we can be faithful. Faithful does not mean weak. It does not mean a bunch of men, a bunch of uh, uh, men who act like women, right? <laughs> a bunch of soft, non-combative uh, uh, people with no conviction. It doesn't mean any of that. It just means that our spirit is right, and, and, and that's what we're hoping for. So let's go ahead and read the text now. Verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Remember, the theme of the scripture is kings and kingdoms and thrones and crowns and dominion. It's Satan's effort to exalt his throne, his rule against the Lord's. That's what it is. It says here, be wise now, therefore, or in verse 10, be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish from the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Let's talk about while the heathen rage or how to survive in a world of God-hating rebels, all right? Let's pray. Lord, we pray for help as we examine this text. Lord, I can think of so many better people to preach this text. There's certainly better ways to do it. But I pray that you'll help me in this hour to say what should be said the way it ought to be said and that it would be 
helpful to your people, encouraging to this church. And that's what we hope for. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's go back again for a second and think about this idea of a conspiracy. And um, you guys hear the word conspiracy, the term conspiracy theory used all the time. Now, this is not a political sermon, so you can relax. You hear the terms conspiracy theory used all the time as if to suggest that the word conspiracy is a synonym for something wacko, right? That's not what the word means. A conspiracy is when two or more people join together, usually in private collusion, in order to perpetuate some nefarious and mutually beneficial agenda. That's a conspiracy. So the question is not, do conspiracies occur? It's which ones are real and which ones are fabricated, right? Because we could study conspiracy history, and there's a long list of conspiracies that now we know are no longer theories. They're facts. You see what I'm saying? So, so it doesn't make you wise. I always say it this way. This is Dalton-isms here. This is... My, th- my idea is right here, but I feel like you have to pick a lane. You're either going to be a little wacko or a little paranoid, right? No, that's not the right word. Gullible. Either a little wacko or a little gullible, right? And if I had to choose one lane to be in or one ditch to run in, I'd rather be a tad wacko than a tad gullible, right? I, I would rather over-filter and over-examine and over-question than just drink the Kool-Aid. So the question would be tonight in our text, why do the heathen rage? Why do they hate God? It's, it's outrageous how far we've gone. If you're my age, you remember I remember the the upheaval over the show Friends. Do y'all remember that? When they had the lesbian wedding and everybody went nuts. And that was the gay rights movement, the whole gay marriage thing in those days. And if you'll think about that and how we have gone from it's nobody's business what we do in our world to now you have to accept them, embrace them, and even champion their perversity, right? Or you are considered to be hateful. And th- this kind of thinking you can find in all the different segments of our culture with feminism and all the different leftist ideas and anti-God ideologies. It is a push to overwhelm us with their ideas. And I am telling you the heathen rage... And they hate, I mean hate, God. G.K. Chesterton said that the depravity of man is the one doctrine that has been validated by centuries of human history. You should hardly have to prove to anybody that man is a sinner and that he is thoroughly and completely corrupt. We should be able to see that. And this comes out. Now, what? how does this happen? Quickly, think of these key passages. We know that oldest conversation recorded in the Scripture. 
is not what happened in Genesis 3 in the garden, but it's that that declaration of Lucifer to exalt his throne against the Lord's, right? And so there it begins, this cosmic conspiracy against God and his kingdom. That's it. That's the theme of the scripture. That's what's happening from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. And that's why the billboard says God is coming back and boy, is he mad. That might be a trite way to put it, but it's true. Our text right here said, kiss the son, lest he be angry and ye perish from the way. Judgment is coming. The declaration, the prophecy, or rather the rebuke, the challenge that we should flee from the wrath to come was not a tantrum by John the Baptist. It was, an, it was a warning rooted in what he knew to be true and what he expected based upon the prophecies of God, which is why we find him in a state of disillusionment at one point. Ask Jesus, is he the one or do we look for another? Because what he was expecting, the wrath, the judgment, the rectifying of all things that were uneven in the world caused him to question if he had the one that he had been reading about. Well, he did. It was just a timing matter, right? It was a timing issue. And it's interesting that John, who said to flee from the wrath to come, I'm sure that that, that uh, he was expecting that. Because, you know, we read about another John, John the Revelator, right, who writes about the wrath of the Lamb. What an unusual expression, the the wrath of the Lamb. But my point in all this rambling here is that baked into our Christian expectation is that there's coming a day when the king is coming and he will right the wrongs, right? He will establish his kingdom on this earth. And that's what is, that's the context. For Psalm 2. This is a messianic psalm. We'll get back to that. But Isaiah 4, I will exalt, Isaiah 14, I will exalt my throne against the Lord's. And then we could run over to Ephesians 6. And, and here we see the contrast now between the idea of a literal, earthly, messianic, Jewish, prophesied kingdom and literal armies and literal nations, right? And a spiritual Conflict. Ephesians 6 says we wrestle not against flesh and blood. That's, you could sort of see the contrast between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God there. The kingdom of heaven being an earthly kingdom. Only mentioned in the book of Matthew. Jesus came preaching that and the Jews rejected it. And now to as many as received him. Right? Came into his own. That's the group. Israel came into his own, but his own received him not. Now in this age... To as many as received him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God. That's a spiritual thing. But when we are raptured, we're going to go back to that literal kingdom stuff. Does that make sense? And that's what's happening here. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 talks about the God of this world has blinded the minds of those that believe not. And so there's that spiritual conflict. What I'm trying to get you to see is the contrast. The contrast between Israel expecting a literal Messiah to establish this kingdom on this earth and then our conflict, which is a New Testament body of Christ 
spiritual conflict. And the reason we're comparing them is because we're both expected to be faithful. Okay? Both of us have the same enemy. And in our text is timeless truth that would inform our faith in a very difficult age. That's the point. Could have said it a lot faster than I said it. The point is, just as Israel has their struggle, and then they'll go into the tribulation period, and God's going to preserve them through that time, and they're going to be looking for the Lord to return and the Messiah to set up his kingdom, we are also in a similar state, except ours is a spiritual warfare, awaiting a rapture, awaiting to be called out of this. We'll be called out, they'll be left, sort of thing, right? Matthew 24 There's some that will be left and taken into the kingdom, rather. Israel as a nation will be taken into the kingdom. They're going to be raptured, but you forget all that detail. Let's get back to the text. Y'all with me? Yeah. So my point is, you read in Matthew about wheat and tares. Judgment happens two different ways with us. We will be caught out. Judgment will happen after we're gone. But then there's coming a day where the good will be left and the bad will be removed. That's the contrast. Matthew chapter 13, Matthew 24. That's why we don't confuse the two because Matthew's not about the church. It's about Israel, see? All right, let's get the sermon. So why all this antipathy? Well, there's this struggle, this satanic conspiracy to oppose God's kingdom to oppose God's glory, to oppose the coming Messiah. Let's look at the rebels and their rejection. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. The rebels and their rejection. You know, in Psalm 1, we talked about the perfect man in type. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of waters that bring forth his fruit and his season and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper but the ungodly are not so so there's the contrast right and we have the tree the faithful jew awaiting the kingdom and god's going to make them fruitful again right and he's going to raise them up and they're waiting for that the remnant is being faithful that's what we see in this text and the emphasis is on the law Delight thyself in the law of the Lord. But we get to Psalm 2, and it's a messianic psalm, meaning it addresses directly the coming Messiah, who is the promised king for Israel. And while Psalm 1 focuses on the law, Psalm 2 focuses on the prophecy, because it's directing the attention of those who are in the midst of raging rebels, right? God-haters. It's directing their attention to the coming king where all that's wrong will be made right. That's the theme. 
you'll notice that David, David is looking at the world around him and appears to be wondering, why is this happening? Why do the heathen rage? Why do the people imagine a vain things? Why are the kings of the Lord allowed to do this? Do you ever ask those questions? Of course you do. You wonder why the ungodly seem to prosper? Why it seems to be so good for them and so bad for us? Everybody has that struggle at times where they feel like the good is not rewarded and evil seems to be the right way. And that's where David is at. That's what he's saying at the beginning of this chapter. We're living in a day where there's feminism and abortion. We talked about it once already, 65, 70 million abortions since 1970. Nobody cares. Somebody forgets to feed a puppy and the whole world stops turning. Yeah. Gender fluidity and hookup culture and a weaponized, politicized justice department. World War II seems to be the talk these days and hints of new strains of COVID and mask mandates again. And on top of all that, to make matters worse, Alabama's losing to Texas. It cannot get worse. The world is nuts. Heathen, the people, the kings, the rulers, against God, and they will not be restrained. Now, I feel that I've been unclear. Maybe uh, if you're preaching and you've confused yourself, you, you may need to go back and restate something, right? There's two groups of people in the Bible. But I'm, talk, I'm generalizing. There's more than two. But the Scripture's written and directed mostly to Israel and the church, and that's the great division in the Scriptures. What I'm getting us to do is in this Messianic Psalm, which has to do with Israel, and the prophecy for Israel in a Messianic kingdom, they are expected to be faithful and to trust God. And in a timeless sense, we have the same responsibility as the church. They're awaiting the return of the king to this earth. We're awaiting the rapture. You see, see what I'm saying? And it's all very similar spiritually speaking. That's what we're trying to do. Grab the timeless truths and drink from that well so that we, like them, can face the adversity of the raging heathen and the kings who have set themselves and the rulers who have taken counsel against the Lord and we can keep our wits about us in a crazy day. I mean, you know the world's going nuts. When people think that Deion Sanders is greater than Nick Saban. We know that's apostasy, right? <laughs> and I like them both for whatever that's worth. But, but notice number two. We, we said the, the, the rebels and their rebellion, their rejection of the king. But notice number two, the Lord and his laughter. <laughs> and this is where the Religious snowflakes, you know, kind of spin out right here. The Bible says in in uh, verse 4, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh, and the Lord shall have them in derision. 
God is going to laugh. You know, there's an, a similar statement in Proverbs 1, which is referring to wisdom. And wisdom crieth out in the streets and calleth men to, to comply with wisdom. And when they refuse to and they reject the reproofs of life and the reproofs of wisdom, is I will laugh at your calamity, I will mock when your fear cometh. The same principle, because wisdom comes from God. Same, the same idea. Look at Psalm 37. What, is, what do we mean here? What, is, what should we take from this? The Lord and his laughter. So while we're wringing our hands and sweating bullets, worried to death about the election, if we get the wrong guy in, we're finished, we're toast. Right? People, I think people think the Lord's nervous. Man, if Trump doesn't get elected, I, I, my kingdom is going to go up in smoke. Everybody's wrapping the cross on the flag. and Don't get me wrong. I would enjoy two or three years of left-wing hysteria just for no other reason but just that. I, you know what I mean? I mean, if Trump didn't do anything good, I, I don't care. I would just like to see that. I know that's not nice, and it contradicts everything I've said so far, but that's just the way I feel about it. Psalm 37 and verse 13, the Lord shall laugh at him, for he seeth that his day is coming. How about that? Their day is coming. Now listen, as, as Christians, we should want them to be rescued from that judgment and from that condemnation. And we should want to preach the gospel to them and reach them while there is hope. And that's what the Bible means when it says today is the day of salvation. It means, I think, this age, this is your opportunity to get right with God. And if you miss it, it's over for you. And he will laugh at your calamity. Spurgeon said it this way. He said, let us now turn our eyes from the wicked council chamber and raging tumult of man to the secret place of the majesty of the Most High. What doth God say? What will the king do unto the men who reject his only begotten son, the heir of all things? Mark the quiet dignity of the omnipotent one and the contempt which he pours upon the princes and their raging people. He has not taken the trouble to rise up and do battle with them. He despises them. He knows how absurd, how irrational, how futile are their attempts against him. He therefore laughs at them. Psalm 5, 5 is a shocking verse for many, which says, The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Now, we all know if you compare Scripture with Scripture that hate and love has to do with strong preference, right? We know that. But when a person rejects the Savior, what they get is judgment. What they get is a form of hatred. It's not, that, that's what it is. And that judgment is eternal and it's immeasurable. And just as we see the glory of God in a story like Dominic gave us tonight, and we rejoice in God's grace, and I love his word, God's providence, we also see the glory of God in his judgment of evil. And so we see the Lord's laughter 
We understand that his derision is contempt manifested through laughing. Now, what do we take from that? I don't think that we take from that a challenge to be dismissive about the infidelity and the suffering and the of others we should want the worst of heathen <laughs> to repent i think what we take from it is why do we worry so when he that sitteth in the heavens laughs it's not our job to line all this up would i love for happy days to be here again sure i would would i love for there to be a day when men are men and women are women yes i would Would I like to see a day where freedom replaced tyranny? Yes. But regardless, I don't have to worry. I don't have to wring my hands. I don't have to be scared. I don't have to be anxious. I don't have to sit up at night counting votes. Because he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. That's a great verse for you guys. You go to school every day and you feel the stress of the world and and, and and by the way, the older folks feel it too. They just put it in a different terminology. I remember when I was a kid, the word was popular. You remember that? I don't hear that anymore. I used to hear preachers always talking about you kids want to be popular. Well, for crying out loud, who doesn't? I mean, I'd like to be liked. I don't want to be hated. You'd think I'd be used to it by now, but I'm not. <laughs> you know? And so you guys are going to go to school and if you live and believe these things, you'll have to stand up against some things. And, 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 and I don't advise you to go to school cause trouble, but when you, when you have an opportunity, when it's required of you to stand for the Lord, you should have a good sound answer and you should have the courage to stand alone if you have to. Because he who sitteth in the heavens shall laugh and he can be trusted and you can stand for what's right. That's the idea. So, We see the Lord's laughter, and then we see, this watch is not working. It's going really fast. The king and his kingdom. We see the rebels and and their rejection of the Lord, and we see the Lord and his laughter, and then we see the king and his kingdom. Verse 7, I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son this day. Have I begotten thee? Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance in the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Now, that is a a messianic passage. What it means there when he says, I will give the heathen for thine inheritance, is that one day the Lord will sit upon the throne, and all the nations of the world will recognize him for who he is. All right? That's not an evangelism text. It's every other missions conference. That's the... Proof text. I'm not mad about that. That's just not what it's talking about. The Lord will bring judgment and that rod of iron and break the backs of a rebellious world and sit on his throne and there will be glory in that kingdom. So what now? So what do we do? What can we do while the heathen rage? What admonition can we find in this psalm? without completely spiritualizing a verse to make ourselves feel good about uh, a pretext, (laughs) what can we find in a timeless sense in that text that would help the New Testament believer to be strong in the face of the stinging rebuff of godless opposition? What could we do? What could we think? Where can we stand to get through this? 
Look at verse 12. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. That's the answer. While the heathen rage, we trust him. Right? That's it. There's nothing deeper than that. And it's difficult to preach that because it sounds like a slogan, doesn't it? Like a platitude. Well, just trust the Lord. Amen. (laughs) Your tires are bald, but you're going to trust the Lord. Well, I'm just going to trust the Lord to get me to Memphis. Amen. Well, there's no verse in the Bible that says because you're a Christian, your tires will last longer than other people. So that's not faith. That's crazy. Right? My family makes fun of me because I'm really horrible at anything mechanical, anything maintenance-oriented, basically anything that requires accountability, work, um, (laughs) responsibility. I'm against all that. And so we were going to visit our daughter in Atlanta, and just as we're heading out, I noticed there's a scraping sound somewhere in the brake region of my truck. Not a squealing sound. We went right past the squealing to the scraping. You know what I mean? It was horrible. But if you turn the music up, you don't hear it. (laughs) Which is what I did. We got to Atlanta. Lisa's going to stay for the weekend, spend some time with the baby and all that. And I had to come home. And so I head out on Saturday morning. I'm going across the the little country towns north of Atlanta. And I'm riding along. And the scraping seems to be uh, getting worse. (laughs) stop at a Starbucks that fixes a lot of things and I get in the truck and I'm backing out and it literally something catches I thought I ran over something because something's going wrong with the caliper I think that's that thing that clamps down on something that makes your truck stop I think (laughs) is that right did I get that right so I get in the truck and I said well I I forced it that's the second thing If, if turning the music up doesn't help force it so I get back on the road. Once I got going, it, it, it was seemed to be <laughs> seemed to be better. <laughs> and I'm going along, you know, just kind of hoping against hope. And all of a sudden, the traffic is stops in front of me, and I hit the brake, and something broke. You know what I mean? And my brakes went all the way to the floor, and I'm not stopping. And I'm like, oh my word! <laughs> I said something like that. I, I can't get this stopped. And so I'm thinking, I'm going to have to run into this person's yard. And literally, I was about ready to run up in somebody's yard. And the traffic started moving, so I was able to coast into a parking lot. Now, remember, it's Saturday afternoon now, okay? And I'm up in a little small town. And and remember, my family makes fun of me for my risk-taking, my lack of responsibility. And I coast into this parking lot. And I know then my brakes are wrecked. And I just barely get it stopped. And I'm already thinking I'm going to have to rent something. I'm going to have to get my my truck towed. I may get home in the middle of the night and try to preach tomorrow. And I'm already trying to get myself together and not completely lose it, right? I get out of the truck and I, oh, man. I look over and there's a little raggedy little shack of a building over here. And in giant letters, it says, brakes. (laughs) I kid you not. 
And it was not a corporate spot where, the, you know, you're going to get a computer printout and a $48 job is $4,800. It wasn't one of those. It was some Mexican guys. I didn't understand anything they said. They didn't understand anything I said. I just pointed and they drove me down to the parts store. I bought the parts. I said, tell him what I need. He said something in Spanish. I paid him, drove back, and in 30 minutes, my truck was fixed. The moral of that story is responsibility is highly overrated. <laughs> now, <laughs> I just said all that for the fun of it. Amen. I wasn't trusting God that my brakes would make it. I was just being a little on the irresponsible side. Amen. Yeah. But there is something about faith. If we'll leave the surface, leave the superficial, leave the the slogan-esque approach to Christianity that we live in sometimes and get down here and unpack it. What does it really look like to trust God? That's what we're calling for in this hour to genuinely trust him. While the heathen rage, we we have to trust him. It means something. If you raise kids, you have to trust him because it takes time to get them someplace that you can rejoice in sometimes. You have to go through the years with them. Not the moments, but the years If you pastor a church, you have to sow and reap and sow and reap not so much and sow and seem like you lose a whole crop and sow again. And then you'll start reaping. It's all about trusting God. What does that look like? Can we take a couple more minutes and look at that and then we'll be done, all right? What does this look like? If I'm trusting God, the God who laughs in the heavens. What does that look like down here in the now and now with my feet on the ground? What does that look like? I know the rapture's coming, but what about now? Let's let's look at it. Go to 2 Corinthians 1. I think it means two things predominantly. There could be others. This is as deep as my shallow mind can go. 2 Corinthians 1. Look at verse 9. But we have the sentence of death in ourselves. How many of y'all understand that's Paul's not having a good day when he says that, right? The sentence of death, that's bad. That's a bad day, right? That we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raiseth the dead, who delivereth us from so great a death and doth deliver in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. I think the first thing that trusting God is going to look like is it's going to look like perseverance. When the sentence of death is upon us and we would cave in and throw in the towel, we trust that he'll deliver us. So what do you do when you trust that he'll deliver you? You keep doing what you're supposed to do, right? You keep showing up for work. You keep participating in family life, right? You keep coming to church. You keep doing your job. And you wait for the tide of his blessings 
to come back in. You, you wait for the time that the sentence of death is replaced by the presence of his tender mercies. It's perseverance. It's staying in the, in the way. Look at 1 Timothy 4. I mean, wouldn't you agree that that would almost be fundamental to trust in God, right? Continuing to do what you know is right to do. I don't know how you can make it much more than that. First Timothy 4 and verse 10. For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. Perseverance. Well, what is perseverance? It's, it's, it's the two things in that verse. It's labor and it's suffering. It's continuing to do the work because it's the work that God's given you to do and it's suffering through the difficulties and the adversity, trusting that he will use that contribution, that he will use that investment. What He'll take what you sow for his glory and for the good of others and he'll do something eternally beneficial with it. That's perseverance. You know, the Baptist historian Ray said that you could trace the story of the Baptist by the gloomy light of martyrs' fires. That is who we are. And as we said last night, what the lions of Rome could not do to Christianity, materialism is done. Satan has gained ground by giving us all so much to lose. So let's stand up to that. And let's persevere. Let's, let's be faithful, right? <clears throat> what does the hymn say? Uh, uh, should I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? There's a second thing, though. Look at 1 Timothy 6. We're talking about what does trusting God look like. And, and this messianic psalm for the Jew, we apply it timelessly to the church. And here we are in the midst of a God-hating culture. And as we say in Alabama, getting worser. Amen. <laughs> That's not a deep word. W-R-S-E-R, worser. You Yankees, y'all don't know words, do you? <laughs> Oh, man. First Timothy 6. How did a guy say to me one time? I picked him up for church. You remember the barber, Dominic? You remember the barber? He used to come to church some, offering burnt sacrifices out in front of the church all the time. Remember that guy? And I picked him up for church one night, and he was saying, he was saying something, trying to be fancy. And, and he used this word. It's not a word. He said, Oh, he said, preacher, I was just kind of went about it kind of nonchalant. And he meant nonchalant. He said, kind of nonchalant. And I looked at him, you know, and he said, you didn't know I knew any big words like that, did you? I said, I, I did not. Frankly, I, I don't even know that word. <laughs> Woo, that's good stuff. First Timothy 6, look at verse 17. Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. Notice the contrast. We, 
We don't trust our riches. We enjoy them. Now, keep that in mind. It's okay to enjoy them if God has given them to you. You don't have to take a vow of poverty. That's not scriptural. If God has blessed you, enjoy what he's given you, but you don't trust it. You trust the living God. If our first challenge was that we are to persevere in faithfulness, trusting God, the second challenge is that we have perspective. Trusting God, what it looks like, is perspective. In other words, we believe what this says about what is good, what is bad, what is valuable, what is not to be trusted. We believe it, and it gives us a better perspective. We are not overwhelmed by the opinions and the value systems of the world. We're grateful when we do well. We thank God for the rave. We'd rather have a car that starts than a car that won't, right? But we also have perspective. There's another version of that and we're done. First Peter 3. And I am the worst person to be preaching about perspective because I have almost none. If things aren't going my way, I'm near inconsolable. <laughs> you know what I mean? I can make something negative in a heartbeat. It, you know how we do when we get our feelings hurt or life's not going the way we want it to go or we've been disappointed. The Bible says hope deferred maketh the heart what? Sick. We've all been there. We lose our perspective. We forget what's important in the world. Dominic said, he was 16, didn't realize the blessings that he had. Nobody does when they're 16. But some of us are older than 16 now. It's time we learn to trust God and have some perspective and be grateful for what we have and where we're at in life. Look at this one, 1 Peter 3 in verse 5. For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves being in subjection under their own husbands. So, in other words, their subjection to their husbands was rooted in their faith in God. They trusted him. So they accepted what he taught them in his word about how to relate to their husband. I I can't think of a better example of perspective than that. Because it is a difficult thing and sometimes counterintuitive to say, okay, this is the husband God's given me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what he tells me to do. I'm going to submit to him. He's calling the shots. That doesn't mean he's smarter than you. That doesn't mean he's better than you. That means he's the one God's put in that home and in your family to lead. And perspective puts all those things into place, right? And perspective allows you to see those things and not strive for clout that the world offers, this is not what the sermon's about, but I, it's it's interesting to me that it's an insult to a lady, almost a reprehensible thing to suggest that she should do what her husband tells her, right? Hold it together at home. Do what's supposed to be done there and to, and to take that role seriously as a wife and a mother. That's an insult. 
So she gets a job as a nurse and goes to the hospital and has doctors and head nurses telling her what to do. And nothing wrong with being a nurse if you're a nurse. That's not insulting at all. But let's be sure, let's be clear about this. It's not superior to being a wife and a mother. It's a job. It's a respectable job. It's an honorable job. But you understand, there's nothing that is, is humiliating about subjection to God's man in your life, right? And the perspective that comes with that. Now, that's just one example. We can apply that to men. We can apply it to children. We can apply it to pastors. We can apply it to churches. What God requires of us sometimes is chafing. And it requires perspective. One of the most difficult things in the world for a preacher to do is to make his ministry about God and his word and not, and not about himself. And so when you start forgetting that and making it about yourself and you're trying to minister to people, you think your power, your influence, your clout as a preacher is all about how they respect you. <laughs> so if you don't get treated the way you want to get treated, you see what I mean? You see how you can get that all messed up in your head? And, it, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a lack of perspective. And then what does that preacher do? He becomes hypersensitive. He becomes obsessed with how people see him. Serve people if you're in a leadership position. Let God promote you. Humble yourself and God will exalt you in due time, right? Isn't that the example that Christ gave us? Perseverance and perspective, I think, are indications of people trusting God in the midst of a very angry, God-hating culture. Perseverance and perspective. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you will encourage Grace Baptist Church, however they may need these things.